0: I, I just posted on Twitter. I was like, I need to be cheered up, and one of my Twitter followers instantly gave me a sent me a picture of uh, the the quarterback from New England lying in the grass crying, and I'm like, Yep, that'll do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Back to the band.
0: Let's let's talk some comics.
1: What have you been reading lately? Well, you know what? Let me actually let me bring in the show. I haven't
0: actually been reading much of Okay, okay. What, we're going to sing now?
1: <laughs> I'll leave that to you. Uh, oh. you. You you are Dr. Bill's replacement today.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm Dr. Bill's I'm Dr. Bill's replacement. Okay.
1: But uh well, actually if I, if I remember correctly, the last time we on, had you on was for the Avengers Spotlight. Yes. And we asked you to lead off with a la and you sang the la I do. uh, That's because
0: I like to sing.
1: For everybody listening, this is Back to the Bins, and I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined by my friend Tom DJ today, if you haven't already figured that out. Hello, hello, hello. And unfortunately, Scott and Bill, who... Both went out of their way to tell me that they really wanted to be on when you were on here. <laughs> haven't weren't able to make it tonight. So it's just the two of us here to talk some comics. Well so you started to say you haven't been reading much lately? I, I you gotta realize I, I kind of left
0: the hobby back when the uh the dick news started. The what? You know, the dick new.
1: The the new fifty two?
0: Yes, yes, that thing. Oh, okay. But uh well, are you
1: reading anything old?
0: Um well I, I had been working my way through um The the Doom Patrol showcases.
1: Oh, those are nice.
0: Which are, you know, because that was one of my favorite comics when I was a little kid. And, you know, they put out the uh, two volumes, which covers the entire Arnold, Drake, Bruno, Premiani run. I don't think they've done a third one yet, have they?
1: I don't think they have.
0: Yeah. I I I have
1: the first one. I don't have the second one, even. Those are goofy books. Oh, they absolutely are, but, but I those are fun, them. and I remember them from being a kid too, and and reading those. And it seemed like every time I found an old issue, it was always the same one with the uh, animal, vegetable, mineral man. <laughs> yes. But that's you um, know you're not reading anything new. You're reading that. It's it's much more suited to you being on this show anyway.
0: Well, that was that, That's the thing. The reason I, I, I left the hobby was that uh, for the, the the five years leading up to two thousand and eleven. I was getting this increasing feeling that it had passed me by. That the, the the worlds of both Marvel and DC had become such a dark, dark place that I didn't want to hang out there anymore.
1: Mm, sometimes. Sometimes I agree with you. It depends on the book. Every once in a while you find one that mm. transcends that and, 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 and they have a storyline that's really enjoyable. Uh, I, I yeah. really, really enjoyed the Superior Spider-Man storyline that they had recently.
0: Okay. I mean, the last thing that I really kind of enjoyed um, from either book before I left was the, the power girl run by uh, Palmiotti and gray and Amanda Connor, which was genuinely fun. It was Mm -hmm. just crazy goofy stuff. And, uh, and of course around that time was also when uh, I I started writing the
1: shadow Legion books. And where are we on that? I know the second one came out.
0: Well, no, the second one hasn't, It, it is coming out. It is done. It is at the publishers. It's waiting for some illustrations. Uh, that's called The Shape of Fears to Come. It's four individual novellas, each one featuring a different Shadow Legionnaire. Um, there's a smattering of, to my surprise, the it seems like the one character everyone wants to read more about is Dreamcatcher, who is the character I thought was going to be the least interesting to people. Um, and there's going to be a couple of short stories showing up in various anthologies this year. And then... Um, I'm working on the second full novel, which is called Machina Ex Deus.
1: Why don't you uh, tell everybody listening, if they're interested, where they can get them?
0: Well, the first novel is still available through Amazon.com and Airship27.com. It's called New Roads to Hell, and it's set in 1941. Um, The next one's going to be in 1966. There's going to be a lot of Kirby Crackle and science fiction and spy organizations and stuff in it.
1: and Uh I have Blue. to get my my lazy butt in gear and and sit down and read these books cuz I haven't yet and I apologize to you that I haven't. That's okay, it's... you don't have to apologize. Cuz I, I do I do want to. So
0: so yeah. So the thing was is like as I was getting dissatisfied with the with the commercial comic industry, I was creating my own comic universe to play in. Mm. So it became even easier to just say goodbye. Um
1: well, you know th- There's I, I, the Go ahead.
0: Go ahead. I mean, th- there's still the occasional like indie. Like I'm still a big fan of Phonogram. You know, the McKelvey, uh, Jamie McKelvey's um, series about magicians who get their power through their uh, connection with pop music.
1: I just, just you know, I, I don't spread that far into the indies, and I should, but I don't. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, uh, oh, but I that's, recommend That's, that's no
1: one to me. I
0: recommend it highly. It's, it's an. It requires a lot of knowledge of um of popular music but luckily McKelvy includes a um glossary at the end of the at the end of each graphic novel so even if you don't know who let's say like echo belly
1: is and go to the don't. glossary and i'll tell
0: you exactly <laughs> what you need to know
1: okay that was going to be my next question is is it current pop music or pe- or past but apparently it's current well
0: the fir- actually the first uh novel which is called Roo Britannia. Is about the spirit of Britpop trying to reassert itself onto reality. So there's a lot of references to '90s British guitar-based pop bands. But I I can't recommend that book highly enough. I I love that book so much. Well, you—that's what I was
1: going to say. uh, I was listening to to Mike Bailey on Views one time, and mm -hmm. he had uh, Shag on, and Shag was talking. (laughs) You Shag? What's that? (laughs) Sorry. You Shag? Okay. but he he was talking about being disenchanted with some of the new books, uh but his take on it was we're all we all got into this hobby for some reason, we fell in love with some aspect of this, and there 's so much of a body of work out there that it 's probably almost impossible for you to have read everything in in the genre that that tickles you, so he said, you know, find what you love and immerse yourself in that so like I- for me. I still, you know, I dabble in the current stuff, but I don't immerse myself in it. I immerse myself in Bronze Age stuff cuz that's what I truly love.
0: Right. Well, that's why like I said I've got the the Doom Patrol showcases right now. That's what I'm I'm rereading the Green Lantern showcase. Oh god, those things are just uh, hilarious unintentionally. Yeah. From uh from the, the perspective of 2014. Um and let me tell you something uh Hal Jordan would not have passed the concussion test. <laughs> the the number of times he got himself knocked out in those early issues.
1: Yeah, yeah well, you, you know, that's, I guess that's one of the, the points where they totally play with reality. Because you, you see yeah. guys like Al Toon, <laughs> who, who to this day is still having problems because he had a few concussions in uh, yeah. in football. But meanwhile, in, in these comics, you know, the guys are getting knocked out every third issue. Mm-hmm. And, and yet you know what n- else never have any games? lasting problems.
0: You know what else I recently reread, and it still holds up, even though there's like references to Reagan and Gorbachev and the like? What's that? The John Ostrander Suicide Squad.
1: Hmm. That That's something book. I haven't even looked at in 20 years at least. Oh, that book still reads so good.
0: And that was like during the time, if you remember, where Ostrander had this kind of like little corner of the DC universe because he had that and he had Manhunter and he had Firestorm and they all kind of interconnected with each other.
1: That's what I was just going to ask if that was at the same time as Firestorm or if that came later.
0: Yeah. No, no. They're all at the same time. And it's just such a good read. Um, it, it, It still holds up. It's funny because, you know, I'm selling my collection. I found a, a dealer who's taking the whole thing off my hands. And one of the things I put aside that I did not want to sell was the, the Suicide Squad run. I have a complete run of it. And he kept trying to bug me to, to, to sell it to him. And I'm like, nah, dude. Still too close to my heart.
1: Mm. Well, that's good if, you, if, you pull, you know, if you're selling them but you pulled out the ones that really you know, sing to you. Right.
0: Well, that's uh, Michael Bailey suggested that. Michael Bailey uh, said, you know, put aside, let's say, like one long box of your all time favorite stuff. So it's going to be like that. There's going to be like um, Warren Ellis's Next Wave. Right. Uh, a couple of other things that are going to be in there. And that's just going to be my little secret gemstone of joy. Uh, my collected edition of American Flag. Mm-hmm. is in is in there too the like i said the phonograms just a little bit and you know the doom patrol is staying with me so the, the, there's going to be a little nugget of the stuff that just gives, gives me the most fun
1: and that's i mean doing it through the showcases is also a you know a, a space effective way to do it too yeah. and i love the showcases and the essentials
0: because you get to see the art in black and white so you i for me, at least, it gives me a better understanding of the storytelling techniques. Um, I didn't really appreciate the depth of storytelling and thought that went into Jean, um, Gil Kane's artwork until mm. I saw it in black and white in the Green Lantern uh, showcases.
1: Gil Kane is somebody I would say that about. Gene Colan, I would say that about. Oh, God, yes. Well, we're going to talk a lot about Gene Colan yeah. fairly soon. But then you have, have other people like, uh, you know, John Byrne, Sal Buscema, mm-hmm. uh, people whose art style isn't quite so heavily shaded. Mm-hmm. And I think that the color doesn't, like, reading those in black and white, I don't think necessarily adds to the experience. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, I, I do agree with you on on people who, there there are certain people whose art stands on its own. And that's not... Certainly not an insult at all because John Byrne is one of my all-time favorite artists. Right, not you know not you know, right up there with with the all-time greats. But I still think his art is enhanced by the color. Whereas like somebody like Colin or, or or Kane, you take away the color and you start to see layers to it that you don't see when it's colored in. Well, Colin was
0: always influenced by film noir. I got to interview him in college, and he talked about that was his his. His passion was movies, particularly movies, you know, from the the era of black and white. So, you, and you can totally see that in his artwork. Yes,
1: absolutely. I I first realized how much I enjoyed, and like you say, I don't want to go too much into this because we're going to talk Gene Cohen shortly anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, I first realized how much I enjoyed his black and white art when I started to read uh, Tomb of Dracula in the Essentials, mm-hmm. and and you just saw, especially something like that, where it's such a moody book to begin with. Did you ever read Nathaniel Dusk? I have the books, and I've never read
0: them. Mm-hmm. Because those, if I remember correctly, are black and white. Or they use a very muted color palette or something I, similar to make it look like a, black, like, like a real film noir. I can't,
1: like I said, I can't say I've ever sat down and read them, so I can't picture in my mind. That, that was like towards, towards the end of the run before I stopped collecting for a while. Mm-hmm. So I think he, I think those those started in the mid '80s. Uh, yeah,
0: it was a, it was right? a, a series of two miniseries, imaginably titled Nathaniel Dusk and Nathaniel Dusk Two.
1: <laughs> but and I think I think I think what I did was I think I may have picked up the first one and not the second because I think I think like I said it's on right on the cusp of when I stopped collecting. Right. And then when I started again, somehow they never got read. Mm-hmm. But maybe I maybe I have to make a point of of picking those up because. Certain artists, and in particular, like the two we're talking about, Colin and... and, uh, and Rick Leonardo. And, and, well, Leonardo, too, yeah. But I'm, yeah. I'm also thinking uh, Gil Kane. Oh, yeah, yeah. okay.
0: We, 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 I'm sorry, I thought we were talking about the artists we're featuring in the two comics that we're talking but, about. But the,
1: the, uh, those two in particular, Kane and, and, uh, and Colin, are two right. artists whose work I read as a young man but didn't really grow to ap- appreciate until closer to middle age.
0: But you know what else is the thing? I think you and I are both of the same age where by the time that we started collecting comics, both Kane and Colin, to an extent, were uh, had gone into a very highly stylized phase where they were almost like exaggerations of themselves. Particularly Kane, because you had like, the okay. Kane upward nose shot, for oh, example. Yeah, well,
1: Kane had his stock poses. Yeah. And yeah, the up-the-nose n- up shot or the... The splash page with one person punching the other and the person flying towards the reader. With those, like, gnarled hands. That's, <laughs> that's the one. Yes. I mean, those are those his stock shots, but they're wonderful. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I don't look at them and feel like, oh, wow, he, he, he took the easy way out and used the same pose again. I don't know why.
0: It's not uh, like, let's say, George Tuska at the se- of the same era.
1: Yeah, but I never, I, was, I never grew an appreciation for him. I was Tuska. never a Tuska fan.
0: Yeah, it's like, and I saw a lot of George Tuska's work because I was a big Iron Man fan as a kid. Mm-hmm, yeah. So I got to see a lot of Tuska's work. And yeah, it's like he had like only five faces. He
1: kind of. He, um, he drew the the fat, round-cheek man. Yeah. That was a big, stock George Tusca face.
0: The, I didn't the sharp, he, I didn't
1: cheekbone he, female. Yes. Uh, I didn't think he drew superheroes that well. Although he did okay with Iron Man, but I'm I'm thinking in particular like when he would draw uh, more obscure people in in Luke Cage. Oh gosh, yes. And and uh, I, I just like I said, I never really grew an appreciation for him, and I think it was Steve Englehart who I heard in an interview and was talking about, uh, you know, when when he would write a script, he would give some specific instructions. Well, oh, you know, on this page, I'd really like to do this, and he t- said Tusker would just disregard everything he said and just draw it the way he felt like drawing. <laughs> So he, he was never – definitely never one of my big favorites. Yeah. The guy, the guy who I can't sit here and in good conscience say is an artist that too many people would appreciate but I've grown to appreciate as an older reader is Frank Robbins. I was thinking you were going to say that.
0: It's, it's – people forget – I mean I understand why people are so turned off by him because everything that he draws is very, very angular. And, and you've got those weird poses he sometimes has.
1: Where everybody looks weightless.
0: Yeah. But, I mean, he's got a great sense of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Which people don't notice because they're so busy going like, what that? What way is this person supposed to be moving? You know?
1: I. I... Yeah, there's something, something about him. And like I said, I, I understand why people are turned off by him, much like mm-hmm. you just said. But there's something about when I read it that it just, it captivates me now. And I sit there it and, flows I, and I very pour well. over the artwork. I don't just, yeah. it's not just I'm reading the story. I pour over the artwork.
0: Yeah, there's a definite way that Robbins makes a story flow very effortlessly.
1: Yes. Well, much, much like the characters seem weightless, the story flows by the same way. Mm-hmm. And I, like I said, I just, I love reading his old Invaders books. Oh God! Cause, yes, because in particular, not only not only does he have the pluses that we just talked about, but it has the feel of a golden age book without having exactly. It, you know, it, it, it has it has a feel of the golden age artwork, but it's got a storytelling sensibility that matches the silver and, and bronze age that they didn't have in the golden age.
0: See, I just love. I'm a big fan of the of golden age characters. So, uh, for actually, for me, the team I loved was the Liberty Legion, because that was, like, the really obscure characters. The characters mm-hmm. had, like, maybe two appearances.
1: Yeah, well, they, they started in, in, in an Invaders issue, and then they right. continued on into Marvel 2-in-1 Annual. Mm-hmm. I do remember so, that. And then they, so... they, they did really, like, even though they weren't... And then they were... Was it a Marvel premiere?
0: Yeah, well, the original the original Liberty Legion story crossed over from it was like it started out in invaders it was like a four-part story so it was in invaders then it was in a marvel premiere then back to invaders then back to marvel premiere
1: and then it went to marvel 2-in-1 annual
0: then there was yes the marvel 2-in-1 annual um but then they showed up again at the very tail end of the invaders run like around was it 40 43 or something thereabouts Mm -hmm. when roy thomas was running around trying to tie up all his loose ends
1: and what what I liked about it too is, and I'm not a huge huge fan of retconning, mm-hmm. but I liked how they retconned them into their golden age history and created more of a rich tapestry for their golden age. Because the Marvel golden age, you have to uh, you have to admit, is isn't nearly as rich as the DC. Golden yeah, it, it's a three handed game. It's it's just you know the uh,
0: the Submariner, the Human Torch, and uh, Captain America.
1: Yeah, so they so they expanded it in a way, you know, to to give themselves more. Of a of a legacy. Mm-hmm. And, well, I mean, uh, I think
0: the reason DC has such a rich tapestry is it is DC is of course the big munching monster that every couple every decade or so it, it buys up another magazine, it buys up another comic book line. Mm. So it was DC. DC had their their characters, then they ate up a um, quality comics, and they ate up this one, and they ate up that one, and they now have, they have this, like
1: they ate up Charlton,
0: yeah. Well, that was a gift for Dick Giordano What's on it? I think it was his was it was it his 60th birthday, 50th or 60th birthday. Uh, Paul Levitz bought the rights to those characters as a gift for him <laughs> because though, that was his first job in comics was editing the action heroes line at Carlton.
1: Well, I didn't know that.
0: So um, and they flirted, of course, they flirted at this point twice with the uh, the Red Circle characters.
1: Right, right. And and then, the, the, then they bought the Wildstorm characters more recently as well.
0: Yeah, they they folded those in. Um, and,
1: and I thought because... Marvel was going to do that with the Malibu characters, but they've since given up on them. And some of those characters aren't half bad. Which pisses me be off because, there. yeah,
0: I love Prime, for example.
1: Prime and Rune?
0: Right. Well, Rune, I wasn't a big fan of. Um, I there like was that anti-hero weird...
1: aspect of him without being the Punisher.
0: Yeah. Um. I... I think the thing is, is, I mean, the story goes, as you know, is that Marvel wanted their coloring process and bought the bought the company outright just to get a hold of the coloring process.
1: Yeah, and I, I suspect that ultimately the creator contracts on those characters, uh, they, They're just, all they just owned, don't want to yeah. pay the royalties on them. Because mm-hmm. I'm sure I as would. they continue to print them, they'd have to continue to pay royalties. Yeah, exactly. And uh, oh, let's not forget
0: Sludge, the the Steve Gerber kind of redo of man thing, Mm -hmm. you know, with an urban setting. Um, uh, Yeah, it's 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 funny that the Ultraverse is just one of those. It's like the, you know, comics greatest world. The, the Dark Horse attempt to create it but that's I think part of the problem with like the modern attempts to create a comic book world is they don't allow it to go organically
1: yeah well they, yeah it's got to be instant oh, world, it has to be yeah
0: and as such that that was what made Marvel so amazing in the 60s was that it was an organically grown world
1: what's what's like what amazes me is looking back with you know the, the perspective of my life mm-hmm. and thinking in you know nineteen seventy Three, I guess it is, in my mind at, you know, 11 years old or 10 years old, not even quite 11, uh, how entrenched these characters were, you know, Spider-Man, uh, the Fantastic Four, the Avengers. And to this day, you know, 40 something years later, I still think of Wolverine as a newer character. <laughs> but meanwhile, he was created in like 1973.
0: And oddly enough, he's like the last legitimate um break out original character.
1: Well, I mean, from that perspective, if you try and think of, like, I guess, the later wave of characters, uh, mm-hmm. Punisher pre-existed him.
0: Right. And, and Punisher was, uh, bald-facedly, Jerry Conway's attempt to do the Executioner. Absolutely. Uh, I, I, just don't even like- think, I don't
1: even think Conway tries to deny that.
0: Which is funny because, once again, I interviewed way, way back, longer than I care to remember, I maintained a website called the – what was it? The Daredevil Resource or something like that. And I did an interview for that site with Jerry Conway and at one point I tried to pin him down about the way he turned Black Widow into Modesty Blaze. (laughs) And he refused to acknowledge it. I'm like, wait, but dude, you have – Natasha being found as an orphan by an older man whose specialty, you know, it's like it's it's modesty blazing. No, it's not. Yes, it is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe, you know, maybe it was something that he just couldn't admit to because of potential backlash for copyright purposes.
0: And to be fair, this is the guy who just spent a weekend in San Francisco and said, I think I'll put Daredevil here.
1: Yeah, that's true. But you know that I still think of that as a little bit innovative too, because up until then everyone was in New York. So they finally expanded and said, "Hey, you know what? There's a whole country here." It's weird if you look at the
0: the last like two years of Roy Thomas, because Roy Thomas succeeded Stanley as you know. Then Gene, uh, Jerry Conway came in, and then Steve Gerber came in after Conway. You look at the last two years of Roy Thomas's run. And Matt Murdock is shuttling back and forth between New York and Los Angeles. So it looked like the intention was always there to send Matt to the West Coast. It just turned out to be San Francisco because – and I think San Francisco is a brilliant choice because it's a city on a hill. It's a city of levels, which is perfect for somebody who jumps around and does acrobatics. Right. You know, and (laughs) – so yeah, but you're right, it's, it's very rare, because you had that, then you had of course the West Coast Avengers for a while, for a long while, uh, you had Thor went to Chicago for the space of about a cup of coffee, <laughs> so did uh, Luke Cage. Did he? It's, I don't oh, remember Luke that. Luke Cage, it, it literally, I mean, we, we joke about Thor going there for a cup of coffee, but I think Thor was there for about a year, of comic, book, comic book, uh of comic books. Mm-hmm. Um, Luke Cage literally was there For about less than six months He, he was there Very very shortly They moved him to, New- to, Chica- to Chicago Then when um, They decided to merge his book With uh, Iron Fist They brought him back to New York
1: all right, so it was right at the end there, I guess around like the late forties
0: the late forties exactly they moved him that was but then, if I remember correctly also that was when the book was getting like a new writer every three to four months
1: yeah, it was definitely a b or c list book at that point they weren't yeah. they weren't even trying to push it as as a as as a top book, but then when you know it 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 seemed like a strange combo to me to take this you know street level guy and and combine him with a uh you know, Eastern trained martial artist,
0: a guy who was basically Amazing Man from the the Golden Age. But it so, really, that Roy it really did admits.
1: reinvigorate both both characters. Yeah, and I, they, they had a they had a pretty nice run under Claremont. Uh, well, Claremont wasn't there for that long. The person who
0: was there the longest was Mary Joe Duffy. That would be after him, right? Yeah, and she was there, gosh, for about five years, and then Kurt Busiek. It was one of Kurt Busiek's first jobs took over from there and, and kept it going to the end of the run, like around I think one twenty five, I wanna say.
1: I think that sounds about right.
0: You know, it's uh and it kind of became like a training like it became like a training book for, you know, people who Marvel had some high hopes
1: for. Hmm. Yeah that's you know. what that- and, and that's what that's what I want to see when they do that is if you're going to do training books, do it for people you have high hopes for. Don't just do it for people you feel like giving work to because it seemed yeah. like that's what they did with the annuals after a while. Hey, just give yeah. it to whoever. you know. Mm-hmm. It's, they it was almost like let's see who will do this the cheapest.
0: <laughs> do you remember an artist by the name of Jim Callamy?
1: Not offhand.
0: Okay, because back in the night he got a lot of work from Marvel, and I never understood why because he was so terrible. He was probably cheap.
1: Uh, probably, <laughs> Or yeah, he had he pictures was, of somebody.
0: He was on. He was on an Alpha Flight. He was on Strike Force Mortori when they brought it back for a while. He was on a lot of those like D level books. It was. It was very very. That was just. That was at the same time that James Hundell was running Alpha Flight, and he kept bringing in these new characters like the Purple Girl. Yeah,
1: that was, at that point, I was I was no longer getting yeah. uh, Alpha Flight. <laughs> yeah, it really but, was. You know, basically, and I I probably didn't give it a fair chance. Once Byrne left, I was kind of done with it. Mm-hmm. But I, w- I always had a fondness for the characters, so when they've you know started it up again, I've always kind of looked at it, tried to see if I can get into it. But then they, they do some crazy stuff like when they had uh you know beta ray bill in there. Okay, that of course, was that was Omega Flight. That was Omega Flight, yeah. No, that was that but was after still my time. Still trying to play on the Alpha Flight thing.
0: Well you had like Stephen... was it Steven, Steve Siegel's version? Which was just bizarre with was that Duncan in Volume two? Yeah, I think that was volume two, the one where they're they're being brainwashed by Department H. Are you talking like recently? This was in like the. This was just either just before or just after, um, or during Heroes Reborn. Okay. I'm they still... revived the book with Steve Siegel.
1: Is that like a twelve? Like it ran for about twelve issues. It ran twelve
0: so? issues exactly. Yes.
1: Okay. Did he did he do the entire run?
0: I he did. He wrote the entire run. I don't know if Duncan Ron who was the artist, did the entire run though. And the the pr- idea was that you had. Uh, you had Alpha Flight and Beta Flight, and they were being brainwashed into service to Department H. And every time one of the Alpha Flight members kind of figured out what was going on, they got rebrainwashed. Sounds like a
1: pretty good concept for a short-term story.
0: Yeah, I think eventually they all kind of figured it out towards, like, the end of the book. And they that was when he started reintroducing the original members.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so you had, like, for example, um, they brought back uh, Guardian. You know, the James. How they revealed there was something that was revealed about James Hudson, and he came back from the dead.
1: Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, they went how, to the I, micro I, I never did learn how they revived him. I do remember an issue twelve when he died, mm-hmm. which I thought was a pretty, uh, pretty good story then. But I never did get. One it. of these people will
0: die. Die,
1: I, was, I, I always love that and whenever, I, whenever I've picked up an issue like that I always try to look at the cover and I'm staring at it trying to find okay where's there a clue here Who you know how can I do it or even you know which of the following people will be in the Avengers when after you know yeah. after the old order changes.
0: I always found like I think like Byrne had these stock cover things that he kept coming back to like for example the one where he would just show something and he'd go warning this scene never appears in the book. <laughs> Yeah, that that's one of his favorites. So,
1: All right, this you know, I could probably I get the feeling that you and I could go on doing this <laughs> for the next six seven hours easy. Yes, but, but uh, we're, we're we're but uh, why don't we uh, jump into our books? Okay. Okay. So now, do you, I normally we go Marvel then DC? But if uh, okay. as as the guest, I will give you the uh, option.
0: Okay. Well, let's let's just tear this off like a bandaid and. Uh... Get into this. Now, I did this old-school back-to-the-bin style where I literally dipped into one of my remaining long boxes and grabbed something at random. And what I got was Silver Blade no. 7 from March 1988, entitled A Night of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, written by Carrie Bates with art by Gene Cullen, inks by Steve Mitchell, colors by Anthony Tolan, letters by Carrie Spiegel, and edited by Denny. Batman, don't come out during the day, O'Neill. <laughs> okay, that part was not in the book but uh, we begin with a sight sure to stir the imagination of kids everywhere a pudgy hanger on named Milestone um hanging on to a giant bat as it flies in front of the Hollywood sign Milestone rides the bat who we learn is named Blackfeather towards a barn boiling in brilliant light at which point he utters the truest statement in the entire comic book what in God's name is going on in there what's going on in there is a fight between an armored figure and a falcon yes an armored figure and a falcon the falcon flees, followed by the armored figure, identified by Milestone as the Winged Avenger, and the bat lands next to the barn and transforms into stereotypical Indian number 547. Together, the two enter the barn to find the skeleton in a tux of Jonathan's the titular Silverblade. You see, Jonathan, a former movie star, has the ability to transform into any character he played in his career and was slaughtered by the winged Avenger with a good old stake through the heart while he was Dracula, but Milestone uses his movie knowledge to revive Jonathan Silverblade Drac by removing the stake from his chest. Unfortunately, Silverdrak is a little too into his part. As Blackfeather explains, since Jonathan died, quote-unquote, has Dracula, he's been brought back to life as Dracula. And so Blackfeather transforms into a big old bar and smacks Silverdrak, inspiring the vampire to turn into a bat and fly away. Since Blackfeather must chase after the Falcon and the winged Avenger, he passes on a portion of his power to Milestone so he can track Silverdrak and, tra- and charges him with bringing Jonathan back from the brink of vampirehood. So while Blackfeather engages in some punchy-punchy run-run with the Avenger, the Falcon, and some blonde chicky I don't even know her name of, Silver goes old Marv Wolfman 70s Dracula on a thug holding up a gas station. We then cut to Shangri-La Mansion, where Jonathan's former leading lady, Sandra Stadden, is talking to a ghost named Brian. Sandra's maid meets up with two sleazy reporters who want the dishy blonde, who's not the first blonde that I don't know the name of, to find evidence of Sandra and her mystery lover while Sandra moons over Jonathan, bemoaning how he's become 30 again while she's still an aged crone. So the Winged Avenger and the first blonde, you know, the one I don't know the name of, they're trying to track the Falcon, which is transformed into a Roadrunner. Trust me, I'm just as lost as you guys are. Being pursued by Blackfeather, who has transformed into a coyote. Just as Blackfeather closes in on the Falcon Roadrunner, the avian annoyance disappears in a gout of Ditko crackle. Back at Shangri-La, Silverdrak appears before Sandra while the maid takes photos. Milestone arrives to find Sandra trying on an old costume while Brian the Ghost argues with her against her intention to join the hangout at night, drink blood, never look in a mirror again set. Back in the desert, Blackfeather finally gets a hold of the Falcon and reveals that it's not the winged adventure he's hunting. But him. Before I can elaborate further, the Indian is attacked by the winged Avenger. But back once more to the mansion, and Silverdrak returns to find a begowned woman. Assuming her to be Sandra, Silverdrak sups, and discovers it's the maid. Sandra, Milestone, and Brian, the ghost, walk in to see Silverblade kneeling with the maid's corpse in his arms, wailing, what have I done? And sadly, no one responds, appear in a nonsensical comic book from the 80s. That's
1: how it ends. That's how it ends. <laughs> okay. Now, just you know, to to come clean for anybody listening, I do not have this book. I do not have it in front of me. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Totally <laughs> dependent on Tom's description of the book. Uh, wow. <laughs> yes. It um, sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, because mm-hmm. maybe maybe I am, and maybe as you read it, it feels differently. But it sounds like a bunch of non sequiturs put together. <laughs>
0: Trust me. Okay, so I pulled this out. This is the first time I've read this since nineteen eighty eight when it came out. And I was so confused by this book. I actually went back and read some of the earlier issues and I'm still in the dark about what
1: exactly is going on. It's, um I, I did <laughs> I did punch make... up a copy a copy of the cover. Yes. Found that on the internet. Uh it looks to me from the cover like it's incomplete. Yeah. It almost looks like like, you know, like Colin did the pencils and when Mitchell picked it up, he kind of partially inked it. Yeah. And just left a lot of blank white space in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the vampire's head, he didn't really kind of even finish drawing. Right. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what's going on there. The the the, the Indian is stepping on the lady's boob though.
0: <laughs> yes, it's true. And that's, of course, Blackfeather, stereotypical Indian number
1: 547. <laughs> I, I never saw an Indian dress like that, but then I haven't seen that many. Yeah. Uh, the bright red and yellow outfit, I'm not so sure about. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I love Gene Collins' art like you're we talking about, but I'm, yeah. I'm thinking like at this era, if he wasn't... This is during the time his...
0: when his his work is so is very stylized.
1: Yeah, no, stylized, I'm, I'm on board with yeah. stylized. I have no problem with that. But I'm thinking... That he he loosely penciled it and he needed a strong inker, mm-hmm. unless he was going to ink it himself. In which case, you know, then then he could tighten up. I'll admit it up the
0: interiors look a lot better,
1: than and the, and, and that cover. would be my first thought that I would expect that. But it's inked by the same guy, so that would make me yeah. start saying, "Well, I don't know, maybe."
0: Um, the thing that does has nonsensical. This book is the one thing that this does give us is it give a, gives us another opportunity for gene colin to draw what i think is probably one of his two or three signature characters um you know because if, if you ask people what what gene colin's signature characters are the three that would come up are howard the duck daredevil and dracula uh
1: see i, I think howard the duck i mean i guess i, I the question is is gene colin the signature howard the duck artist or is howard the duck a signature character of gene colin's because if you t- if you say to me howard the duck I start thinking Frank Bruner. I start thinking Val Mayrick, and I, I think, think and I do think Gene yeah. Colan as well. It's not that I don't come up with yeah. him, but I but I don't know that he's the definitive Howard the Duck artist. He's certainly I, definitive Tomb of Dracula artist, no question. Yes. Oh well, he's the only Tomb of Dracula artist. I would I would let's well then let me expand that. I would say he's the definitive Dracula artist. Right. Who who and who's we, the who's the third that you uh... Daredevil. Death. Uh... Yeah, maybe. I might, I'm saying I, I might just, go with you, you on Daredevil.
0: Yeah, well, no, but the, I'm not talking about... I'm talking about when you think of... When I think of Gene Cullen, those are the three characters I think of.
1: Although, yeah, I mean, if you're asking who the definitive Gene Cole, uh, Daredevil artist is, I'm sure most people will say Frank Miller.
0: Right. But, I mean, Gene
1: Cullen... I also think... that, that I think, character
0: off and on for close to two and a half decades.
1: Yeah, I think Gene Cullen, I also think, tells a suspense Iron Man. Okay. And I think uh, Tales to Astonish Submariner, mm-hmm. which to me is probably if you if you read those Tales of Suspense Iron Man issues, you can see at which point he switched from being a total house artist to trying to develop his own style. Mm-hmm. There's 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 like a, a stark difference. I don't remember exactly which issue it is, but as I read through those, there's one issue where. You know, you could see he's just aping the house style, and the next issue it goes, you know, it it leaps leaps and bounds uh, as far as the improvements in, in the quality of his yeah. art in those issues, and it becomes much more
0: impressionistic.
1: Yes, and 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 and, and the storytelling goes with it too, though. Like his mm-hmm. storytelling improved much much more as he became basically a little bit more moody in his artwork.
0: Well, you have the famous uh, Stan Lee story where he talks about, and it was uh, an issue of Daredevil, um, Brother Take My Hand. I think it's issue number 46, the the issue about the blind uh, Vietnam vet.
1: Right, right. Oh, yeah, that that was in, uh, wasn't that in Son of Origins?
0: Yes, yes. It was the example of the Daredevil story after the Origins story. And... He talks about there's a panel in there which is just Willie Lincoln, the, the Vietnam vet, turning a doorknob. And Stanley talks about getting that page back and at first being like, this is ridiculous. It's just a picture of a man turning a doorknob. But as he studied it, he realized how much more expressive it was than he originally intended. And he allowed, he didn't ask Colin to redraw it as he was originally planning on. Well,
1: it's it's certainly impressive that he can admit to that, you know, that he hadn't envisioned it quite that way and, and that it was better than what he envisioned. Right. So, you, you know, you have to be impressed with the honesty of being able to say I that, mean, I guess. There is a period about, like, the late 60s
0: where Colin is drawing a lot of the flagship titles. He's drawing uh, Captain America for a while. He's drawing, um, you know, he's still drawing Iron Man. He's drawing a lot of these major titles. Hell, they gave him the Avengers for about a year. Yeah, you know that he's and he was. To be fair, I think that he would be the first to admit he was not suited to, to draw the Avengers, but he gave it his best.
1: Yeah, I mean, he never. I don't think he ever did any kind of a. I, I don't remember him ever doing the FF. No, and I. Don't I think he's done. He has him. done some Spider-Man work. I'm pretty. That's sure. what I'm trying to remember if if he did, and I, I think he may have for one of the subordinate titles. I don't think he yeah. ever did any Amazing Spider-Man. He may have done maybe a, you know a couple of issues of Marvel Team-Up or something along those lines, right, probably. Possibly.
0: But then again, everybody I think did a couple of issues of Marvel Team-Up at some point in their life.
1: And yet, the majority of those, I would say, you know, if, if the, the probably the most prolific artist on that book would have been Sal Buscema.
0: Well, that's the. I think that he was the other go-to guy at Marvel, where if you couldn't um, find anybody else, Sal would do
1: it. And Sal, I've, I've often sung the praises of that I feel like he was a slave to who his inker was. Right. Uh, if he had a weak inker, his art would look unimpressive. But when you coupled him with a strong inker, I think Sal Buscema's work, as inked by Klaus Janssen, is... Absolutely See, beautiful. One of my
0: favorite, uh, as you know, one of my favorite comic series from Marvel was The Defenders. Mm-hmm. And the bulk of Steve Gerber's Defenders run was Sal Basema with Klaus Janssen doing yes. the art. Yes, and that's um, some of the most
1: beautiful work he
0: did. Oh, gosh, that whole weird ass storyline with the headmen and the sole- and the nebula and the serpent joining flood. forces. Oh, gosh. Gosh, all of that stuff. I love that. The, the, I've been unapologetic in, in, in telling people that the Shadow Legion is my kind of tip of the hat to the Defenders.
1: Which only makes me want to read it more. Oh, God. it's um. and the funny thing
0: is, is that Gerber used to boast that um, the Defenders was his was his um, his serious book and Daredevil was his comedy. He
1: I, you know, it's funny because every, everybody loves the Frank Miller Daredevil, and, and I do yeah. as well. It's, I'm, I'm not saying this is a, a negative to his mm-hmm. Frank Miller's Daredevil because I loved it. But I do have a very soft spot for the Gerber Daredevil as well. I and love that was the Gerber run. The, that was more the swashbuckling Daredevil. Yeah. That wasn't the dark, grim, and gritty Daredevil.
0: I absolutely adore the Marv Wolfman run that I think followed the Gerber run.
1: That would be around the 130s or so. One,
0: Yeah, basically from like about one, because actually, no. I which I think introduced because, Bullseye. Yeah, after Gerber comes Tony Isabella for exactly about five issues. Then we get Marv Wolfman from about 120-something straight on through about 140. Then we have also a very underrated run by Jim Shooter, which lasts about a year. So there's there's a that drove me insane when, when Joe Quesada took over and said there was nothing good that happened to Daredevil until Frank Miller.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely false. And, and again, I it's not to badmouth Miller's stuff. His, it was great, but Miller's there was biggest good stuff problem
0: was what came after him. Miller's biggest problem was that he he cast such a long shadow that nobody wanted to do anything but Miller's version of the character for something like thirty years. <laughs> yeah, pretty much to the point that when when Carl Kazel decided he wanted to do something closer to the classic Daredevil, you know, something something more light-hearted, people jumped on him and like beat
1: him with sticks, not literally, but you know, um, yeah. It wasn't until the the recent run on Daredevil, uh, you know, the, the last whatever two or three years that it's yeah the Mark it, Wade it, version, the, yeah the Mark Wade Daredevil where and and there it's you know people tend to want to speak in absolutes. They say, oh, it's a lighthearted version of Daredevil. And, you know, No, there's, there's some dark moments in there, too. If you read it, there's definitely some dark mm-hmm. moments. But it is more the classic Daredevil. It isn't the Frank Miller Daredevil. Right. It, isn't the, it isn't the film noir Daredevil.
0: I think, though, you know what I think happened? They had to go all the way to the bottom with that, which is what we got with the Andy Diggle um, Shadowlands storyline. Mm-hmm. They had to d- dig all the way down to the bottom of that whole Catholic guilt, dark ninja crime drama thing before they, the public was ready for, for a change. And I think that's why the Mark Wade stuff is held in such regard. Whereas the, the Carl Casal stuff is kind of forgotten now, even though it was brilliant stuff.
1: And I, and I, I... Unfortunately, can't speak to that because I don't think I read the call Casal stuff. It didn't
0: last very long. Kazel's run didn't last. And it had its moments of darkness. The, the major villain was Mr. Hyde. And uh, the first storyline was Mr. Hyde deciding, okay, you're so important. You're so obsessed with justice. Here, I just killed the woman. I'm going to go and get you. I'm going to employ you as a lawyer and you're going to have to get me. You're going to have to figure out
1: how to get me, you know, off. Hey, there's some darkness there.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's it, it was just a a, a a real people forget that there was a lot of great stuff going on in, with
1: Daredevil okay. beforehand. Um,
0: even the, as as much as we we kind of glossed over it, even the San Francisco stuff.
1: Oh, that's that's when I started reading it. Was when he was in San Francisco. I, I remember reading the uh, the the, the storyline with the mandrel and and yeah,
0: the... yeah the. Um... The Black Specter storyline. Yes, which brought uh, him back finally to the, to uh, New York.
1: Well, that was when he was kind of hopping back and forth from San Francisco to New York, right. and it eventually resettled down in New York. But uh, I, I, that was when I first started reading it, and, and I was totally entranced by it. I loved it. And then they went into the uh, we just recently did a book, you know, right after that run where they introduced a Death Stalker, and oh, what, point, I
0: love that character.
1: At that, that point, was my he was favorite. a great character. He was terrifying.
0: He was my favorite. Absolute. That was when Bob Brown was doing the, the book. Who isn't one of my favorites? <laughs> See, I I liked Bob Brown's art a lot, and the, the only reason he didn't go further, and they you'll notice, of course, once Bob Brown died, who did they go to? Gene Colin. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I the thing was, of course, you're looking at Bob Brown's stuff at the tail end of when he's dying of cancer.
1: Well yeah, it was that and, and when he was uh, doing the Avengers Defenders clash. Yeah. Just that's not just not my favorite stuff. That's and fine, I, and, that's and fine. it's I funny because I had that. mentioned it recently when we did the Daredevil issue with the Deathstalker Stalker and the Man thing. Uh, oh, and then God. afterwards Scott was saying how disappointed he was to hear that I didn't like that I wasn't crazy about Bob Brown. Mm-hmm. And and apparently you're you're on, on, on the same page with him.
0: You know what was the weird thing about Bob Brown during that period is that they were two inkers. He was being inked by Tom Palmer every other issue. Right. And then being inked by another. I don't remember who the other artist was. So when he was being inked by Tom Palmer, it was gorgeous. Was it Mike Esposito? It might have been Mike Esposito and then – so and there were frequently these like two-part stories while Bob Brown was drawing Daredevil where you would have Tom Palmer doing the first I- issue and it would look gorgeous and then you would have Mike Esposito or whoever it was do the second part and it looked messy.
1: Yeah, I think Mike Esposito and, and you know, I, I hate speaking ill of the dead. <laughs> uh, in fact, they just had a big thing on Comic Book Man about Mike Esposito and some of his mm-hmm. work that got auctioned off. And some of it was beautiful from what I saw. But I think he was from the Vinnie Coletta mold that he would work yeah. quickly. And that's mm-hmm. what made him a big advantage so that, you know, if they needed to hit a deadline, he would get it, get them there. And I yeah. think sometimes his work suffered for the fact that he had to get it out so quickly.
0: And we also had at the very like the last
1: six months of Bob Brown's life where
0: he wasn't able to keep a regular schedule. So once again, you would have these two parters where Gene Colan would do the first half, and once again, gorgeous. And then you would have Bob Brown, who's you know was very weak at the time and was having a lot of problems doing full pencils and doing kind of a half assed job of it, not because he. Didn't care, but because he just was inca- physically incapable of doing
1: anything better. Maybe, maybe, maybe I've been too quick to uh, to, to paint Bob Brown with a uh, negative uh, brush. Maybe I have to look a little bit more closely at some of his other work. But yeah, I got to tell you, I I,
0: agree. Oh, I love the Death Stalker.
1: Yeah, I like I said, I just thought his his character was chilling, and and I felt like it lost a lot when they actually gave him an origin and explained his powers. It was Which was just, so of much course when they gave him a mystery.
0: Yeah, it was just better that he when he was, and he was. It was weird because he also appeared in an, an issue of Doctor Strange, guest starring Nighthawk, my favorite defender. Mm-hmm. And that made no sense because all of a sudden it was like, why are you all of a sudden interested in mystical bullshit? You're supposed to be a spy master, you know. Mm. Yeah, that's. I, I don't. I don't it. even it remember was...
1: that issue of Doctor Strange. I, I just it, remember it was... him in Daredevil. And it was
0: such an, a simple but interesting visual, that whole kind of like, you know, shadow gun horribly wrong
1: thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, you know, there's, there's nothing quite as chilling as the shadowy figure with a fedora. <laughs> but just, just to go back, and I'm going to reel us in a little bit, to go back to yeah. Silver Blade a little bit. I do find the concept of a former swashbuckling actor being able to draw upon the characters that he portrayed during his film career, I find that to be a real fun concept.
0: There's a... um, Well, of course, this is like the late 80s, so um, much like with uh, Watchmen, each issue of Silverblade had some sort of background material. And one of the earliest issues has a filmography of Jonathan Lord, who is the the character who becomes Silverblade, so you could figure out and what's interesting is it definitely takes place in the DC universe because, like, for example, one of the uh, his earliest film roles is in a serial called *The Fastest Man Alive*. Mm-hmm. So it's like a Flash serial. Um, but and this one, for example, has a review of a Dracula musical he appeared on Broadway in.
1: Oh, and it was a musical. <laughs> Bites, oh
0: love. <laughs> And it's, it's
1: just all right. So it weird. sounds like it's 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 weird, but it could be kind of clever at points.
0: It was meant to be. It, it's it's.
1: This Coming was during to- a
0: time I think when when one of those early times when like DC was trying to experiment a lot, and this is kind of to, to to paraphrase something I've said on Better in the Dark a couple of times. This is Carrie Bates' answer to Watchmen. He just didn't understand the question, right. Because, like I said, it's just a bunch of, you know, as you kind of figured out. Uh, I, I learned that the, the Falcon, by the way, is a, is actually a living version of the Maltese Falcon.
1: Right, yeah. There's something in the wiki entry that said something to that effect. I'd love to read this wiki entry because it's like, and then this happens, and then
0: this happens, and then he eats somebody, and then this happens. But, yeah, it, it's this issue is I, I can't imagine somebody picking this issue up for the first time and like wanting to continue further with the
1: character. Well, there's, there's, there's yeah, there definitely isn't that uh, every issue could be somebody's first theory <laughs> that, that doesn't see that seems to have been lost on everybody. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's an interesting thing. And one of the things I like beyond just the artwork for Gene Colin is the fact that mm-hmm. he was always willing to experiment a little and try something a little different. And, and, you know, I think Nathaniel Dusk is an example of that that you mentioned earlier. Uh, *Tomb of mm-hmm. Dracula* in its own way was was also you know that was that was new and different at the time because that was coming back from an era when horror books hadn't been allowed for years and years. So you know th- th- that was definitely I, I don't know if I don't know if innovative is the word, but it was definitely different from your typical superhero rights that were uh, filling up the the newsstands at the time. And you know th- I think there's a certain amount of risk there. And I don't think Colin was risk-averse. I think he was always... No,
0: I think, in fact, he welcomed... Him and, going back to our discussion of both these, both he and Gil Kane welcomed the ability to think outside the superhero box. Yeah. So, um, but the thing is, while this is a failure, I think we can kind of agree, uh, this is during a period, like every 10 years or so, DC had these periods where they tried to do a lot of experimentation. Um, Michael Bailey and I keep talking about abuse in the long box. We want to talk about the period in the late 90s when DC had commissioned a lot of bizarre books like Major uh, Major Bummer and Chase and um, Young Heroes in Love. And this is a preview because around the same time we had Peter Milligan's Screamer. We had uh, The Psycho by Doug Mensch. We had and uh, Daniel Brandon. We had a lot of just really interesting books, and many of them failed. But at least they were willing to try them.
1: Right. Yeah, I I think that's that's a pretty fair description. But it's it's. I'm just looking. I'm actually looking over Colin's uh, wiki page right now, Mm -hmm. Uh, just just talking about some some of the uh, the events in his career, and just starting from the Silver Age. Uh, where they talk about how he, he was the first artist for the Falcon, mm-hmm. uh, first artist for guardians of the galaxy. Right. Uh, then they talk a little bit about uh tomb of Dracula and, and that he drew most of the issues of Howard the duck. Uh, then we, we talk, he created the character of Lilith and, and blade in, in Dracula, mm-hmm. uh,
0: I think he also was
1: the first artist of
0: the first artist for other like horror based books like uh he's I think he's officially co-creator of Brother Voodoo, he's officially the co-creator of Son of Satan.
1: Okay. They they don't mention him in here, but that's very possible. Okay. That's
0: but I, I know for a fact he was the he drew the he drew Brother Voodoo.
1: I know I just recently read Brother Voodoo, and I, I, I just can't for the life of me picture the artwork in my head right now. Then had, He had an interesting run on uh, Wonder Woman. Oh, yes. With,
0: with, this is Roy Thomas. This was back when right. Roy Thomas, Jerry Conway, Colin, they were uh, Marv Wolfman. There was a big exodus because a lot of the writers did not agree with Jim Shooter. So they shot... All They just went across the street to DC. So, yeah, and that was, I think, Roy Thomas's and Gene Cullen's first work for DC was the Wonder Woman run where they had, uh, what was it, Captain Wonder and the Silver Swan, mm-hmm. and they, they brought back Dr. Psycho who is just tailor-made for Gene Cullen. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I get to play a big-headed psychic dwarf. I'm
1: there. Then they mention here uh, Night Force. And oh, God, Gem, yes. son of Saturn. Mm-hmm. And then they, we go to Nathaniel Dust. Well, that's
0: another Carrie Bates. If I remember correctly, uh, Gem, son of a Saturn,
1: is another Carrie Bates. Oh, is it? I
0: think so. It was. I think it was created by Carrie Bates. I'm not absolutely certain. And that, uh, of course, was tied into the DC universe by John Ostrander when he did the Martian Manhunter series
1: back in the early aughts. Yeah, well, he did have a very similar look to the mm-hmm. Martian Manhunter, so it, it almost seemed like a natural thing to connect the two. And says uh, contributed to Archie Comics in the late 80s. Yep. Interesting. I, I didn't know that. That's, that's news to me. And Black Panther. Yeah. Uh, he, I mean, he, he was all over. He, he, and, and I've heard some interviews before he passed away. I would heard him on Comic Geek Speak. Um, my friend Des Reddick over at Dread Media did, I think, two interviews with him before he passed on. He, he struck me as, as an absolute gentleman in the uh, interviews I heard with him.
0: When I was at Hunter College, uh, I managed to—he came down to the studio for an interview with with me, and he brought like a big stack of stuff for me because he knew I was a big fan. Um, and he took he took uh, phone calls, and he was just a
1: great, great guy. It's funny because you know I'd heard the comic geek speak interview with him, and he talked about you know doing commissions. And. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, you know what, I I got to try and put a couple of dollars together, and, and you know there was a website where you could contact him to to get him to do them for you. You know, you didn't have to wait till you saw him at a con, and mm-hmm. and I was I was again, you know, going to try and do that, and then he passed away, and it's one of one of my regrets is that I wanted to do that and I never got around to it because I would love to have some Gene Collin artwork, but one of many artists who was <laughs> work I would love to have, though. I have to. Mm-hmm. Well, I well. You remember that that,
0: uh, that that time that we met at uh, the last of the uh, John Carbonaro comic book marketplaces? Yes, yes. Um, that was, I think, one of the last appearances of Carmine Infantino in yes. public before in, he in passed fact, yeah, away.
1: We, we were talking about that afterwards. After he passed away, we were talking about it on the show. And I was saying, I was never a huge fan of the later work of of mm-hmm. Infantino. His early work on The Flash, you know, some of that stuff is great. Uh, but you know when basically like in the 80s when he came back and and he was doing stuff and i was never a big fan and that's then i i was listening to him talking at that same convention you're talking about and he was you know just talking to some fans and everything and 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 it's an, another one who i came to the conclusion that he was an absolute gentleman and and, right. I, and I that's when i realized you got to separate what you think of the guy's work from what you think of the man right you know?
0: Well, I'm a, I'm always one of these people that if you're at a convention and you see one of these golden age art like Martin o, Martin Nodell who's still alive, God bless his heart. Mm. Uh, Martin Nodell co-created Wildcat, one of my favorite golden age characters, and I make you know make sure you go up there and shake their hand because you're not going to get another chance, especially you know people like this. You know we're at an age where people from the Silver Age are going to start dying off very quickly.
1: Yeah. Well, that particular show was when. Uh... I, I, my son and I did a photo op with Stan Lee. Mm-hmm. And it was for exactly that reason because I think it was like $50 to take a picture with yeah. him. I was thinking, I really don't want to pay $50 to take a picture with anybody. Uh, but then the more I thought about it, I said, you know what? He's whatever he was, 87 years old at that point. Right. And I said, you know, who knows how much longer this guy's going to be around. And then I'm going to be kicking myself that I didn't do it. Two of my greatest,
0: joyous possessions, and these I'm keeping. um, For a while, I had this project. I still have the book. um, you know, secured away. I did a, an art project where I went to various artists and asked them to draw their favorite Teen Titan. And I got a Wonder Girl from Joe Staten. Oh, that's nice. And more importantly, this was funny. It's like, remember, I was supposed to be your favorite Teen Titan one team because you know I'm a big Teen Titans fan,
1: right? Yeah. So I only but wanted. Fact, I wish you were still doing the Teen Titans uh, episodes. <laughs> and um,
0: I, I commissioned Herb Trimphy. And Herb Trumphy did the entire te- did like the entire classic team. That's nice
1: to have. For me. I, I I'm and, a, I'm a fan of Trimpy. I don't know if you've heard us when we talk about him, Scott and I have have had some uh some Trimpy disagreements cuz I'm right. a big fan.
0: Well, I think there's a diff- a difference between the Herb Trimphy of the 70s and 80s where he was trying consciously to emulate Jack Kirby and the Trimphy of his later years where he had decided I'm going to just be myself.
1: Well, I- I have to admit, I, I like him better when he was emulating Jack Kirby. That's fun. Where, where everybody looked like they were made out of metal. Yeah, there's a little of that. Okay. Yeah. I, I, can, I can see what you're saying there. You know. But when you talk about, you know, you say you of your prized possessions. One of the things that I have is from in probably around 1975, I had written a fan letter to, to uh, Herb. Mm-hmm. And he sent me back an index card with an autograph, you know, best wishes, Herb Trimpy, right. And a tiny, tiny little thumbnail sketch of the Hulk on there. And uh two years ago, I guess it was, at New York yeah. Comic Con, I brought that with me. And I went over to Herb's table and I was talking to him and he's another guy. He was just terrific. Right. Uh and I showed it to him and, and he was he seemed so impressed that I still had this thing from you know from forty years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh and then, then I commissioned a, a Hulk uh head sketch from him. And I have a picture of me and him, you know, holding up the head sketch. Which, you know, other, it's, it's just, you know, you, you, you get a chance to, to relive portions of your childhood sometimes. And right. that was, for me, a great moment.
0: You know what else, the other, like, fond memory I have of that convention, that, that, that Carbonaro marketplace? Because I was, you remember, I was there on behalf of uh, the Inkwell Awards. Right, right. Which is, is run by Bob Allman. And it's, it's a, uh, a great organization that is um, devoted to promoting, inking has an art form. And one of the things I was doing was trying to uh, solicit contributions from the various <laughs> artists. And I went to Sean Chen, the guy who did uh, a lot of the Iron Man with Kurt Busiek during the post Heroes, during the Heroes Reborn run. Mm-hmm. And I got to watch him. He, he took one of the, uh, the, the sketch covers and I got to watch him as he drew Iron Man. And it was just fascinating seeing the process that he went through. Yeah, to that, to create that image, I was just very very pleased to just have the privilege of just sitting there and talk to him and see him work this work this through.
1: Yeah, I, I love to do that. I, I honestly, that's one of my favorite things about these conventions. I did it at, most recently at the you know New York Comic Con last month. Mm-hmm. I was watching uh, Bob Layton do an Iron Man sketch, and and it, it is Bob it's just Layton. great to watch. I'm sorry, the great Bob Layton. I would I would agree with that assessment. I am a big. That's fan. that's one of my. That's another one
0: of my all time favorite runs. Of course, it's the David Michellani Bob Layton. Both of them actually, both the first and the second run that they had yes. on Iron Man.
1: And and it's funny because. Uh... Yeah, I was talking to him, I had a nice conversation with him, and I, I actually uh, have already told this conversation on, on an episode, but what the heck? Like, uh, you know, he st- he had just done like some very, very light pencils on the page, and I said, oh, what, you know, what are they of you doing? And he looked at me with like this frown on his face, he said, what do you think? <laughs> I said, so I said, Iron Man? And he just kind of sighed and said, yeah, they always have me do Iron Man. <laughs> And and, I mean, he was charging $200 for a full-body sketch, so there was no way I was going to be able to afford it. Exactly. Uh, But I told him, I said, you know, unfortunately, it's a little out of my price range. I said, but if I were buying one right now, I would be thrilled to get a Hercules from you. And he just just broke out into this big grin, and he just said, thank you for that. Alan,
0: Alex Savick, you know, I, I ran into him once many, many, many years ago at a Long Island comic show. And I commissioned him to do a Sledgehammer sketch because, if you remember, he was the the artist in the, the two-issue miniseries based on the late-lamented ABC Dirty Harry parody Sledgehammer. Okay. And he was actually – he was very pleasantly taken aback.
1: Yeah, he I think was sometimes, like, sometimes they like drawing the characters that they're not most famous for. Mm-hmm. That's that's because
0: yeah. he was like everybody's been asking me for Spider Man all day. I, I you were the first person ever to ask me for Sledgehammer. <laughs>
1: you know? Yeah, and there's something to be said for that. That's I was thinking of doing. I was thinking of putting together like a uh, you know a jam piece where you you know you put squares and you just have people you know you yeah. come up with a theme and you ask them to draw the different you know small Actually, sketches. Take, that charge less me to money take for a it. Second,
0: I'll gra- I'll grab the Teen Titans book and I'll
1: tell you what uh, who else I got.
0: Okay, sure. Hold on for a moment, guys. Interactivity.
1: Well, I'll just edit some of this out, and it'll seem like Tom got back immediately.
0: Here's my artist portfolio with all my Teen Titan stuff in it. Let's see what we got here. Uh, I'm going to – which one is that? Um, there's the one that every Leonard Kirk did for me. Um, Wonder Wo- Both Wonder Woman and Wonder Girl. Nice. So it's like your Donna Troy and uh, Cassie Sandmark, and it's it's absolutely amazing. Although of course the boobs are a problem. <laughs> we've already mentioned Joe Staten, um, Sal Valuto. Sal Velluto did this excellent uh, arsenal for me. Nice. Did uh, what else do I got here that would be of interest? Um, Greg LaRock did uh, Mammoth. And here's that Herb Trimphy I told you about, which, like I said, I was so amazingly appreciative. And he, apparently he didn't realize that I just asked for one figure, so he just drew the whole team. <laughs> and his agent said, well, why don't you just do it? And I said, no, give it to him. Wow. So uh, Ron Wilson did did the classic Robin for me. And what else? I think that's it for, like, the big superstar guys. Let's see. Do I have any? Oh, Angel uh, Angel Gabrielle did uh, – Captain Marvel Junior. I guess what he's called now is a CM CM3, which sounds like a you know digital music player. <laughs> uh,
1: and that is it. That's what I got. Well, along the lines of like letting them draw like what they feel like drawing, though. That's mm-hmm. what I was thinking about putting together. Like what I, what I started thinking what might be a cool jam piece to put together is to take a sheet. Break it up into maybe, say, eight to ten squares, mm-hmm. and then put you know put a little post-it with the different names of the characters on each square, and then coming over to the artists whose work I admire and saying, you pick which square you want to do and which character you want to do. Uh, right. And, and I'm, right now, I'm, I'm leaning towards maybe doing a Marvel Villains piece. That was my next project once
0: I filled this portfolio. I was so- going to do Spider-Man Rogues Gallery.
1: Well, I was thinking, I was thinking like just the you know the the premier villains throughout the uh, right. you know you know have one square for Doctor Doom, one square for Magneto, one square for Green Goblin, Loki. Uh, yeah, you know basically like the the key arch nemesis of every, of each key player. And then you know nowadays though I don't know if like you know you, it, when we were growing up if you were putting a square there for Iron Man you'd put Mandarin, but I don't know if you're right. allowed to do that anymore.
0: It's not politically Who would correct.
1: Be? Uh, See
0: that's by the way who I would probably have asked Bob Layton to draw Justin Hammer. Okay. Why? Because Justin Hammer is basically Peter Cushing has a supervillain. Yeah, pretty much. Yes. Yeah, uh, just like that's why I love the Blacklist. Blacklist is James Spader being Lex Luthor. <laughs>
1: that's yeah. I, I, you know what? I, I haven't picked up that show yet, but I, I've, I've heard great things about it. Yeah. I have so many things that are on my to watch queue. It's becoming as bad as my uh, my comic. Well, have
0: you watched uh, Have you watched The Flash yet?
1: Yes, yes. What's nice about it is my kids are are into uh, Arrow. They're into The Flash. Mm -hmm. Uh, My daughter is very into Gotham right now. Right. So, so so Gotham I
0: couldn't get into. Gotham I lasted twenty minutes on.
1: I would say about the third episode I started becoming more interested in it. It Just you know, as it's going on, it, it 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 has. I think it has improved somewhat it's Mm -hmm. it's not at the level of the other ones yet uh what they're doing that's interesting is i guess in order to get people to watch live they're doing a live tweet thing right uh while the episode is airing they're having you know uh stars from the show come on that
0: that's like across the board now
1: yeah but i know Um, while we were watching gotham my daughter you know and whatever I, i don't even know how twitter works to be honest with you it's not something i'm i'm into but uh you know, she she tweeted some comment, and then uh, the char- the actors who play uh, Penguin and uh, Riddler both liked her comments, so she was all mm-hmm. excited.
0: Um, Ming-Na Wen is very, very active on Twitter. Um, so, not just as somebody who loves Ming-Na Wen, loved her even before she became Melinda May. I, I, that, that She actually followed me, and that was like a geek-out moment for
1: me. Yeah, there's something to be said for that.
0: Yeah, you know, um... But that's like like um like my favorite show right now it's not on at the moment is hannibal um and there are a number of resources like this, uh, the writers the writing staff is it tweets regularly um the the actress who plays Freddie Lowndes does it's it's just i mean tw- Twitter is kind of like Facebook, only you have to be very very brief
1: yeah, yeah. well you're limited on a number of characters right yes,
0: exactly, so you've got to be very very careful with you know you have to be very precise. But uh yeah, so but I've been very engaged with the Flash and I'm looking forward to seeing a live action Firestorm.
1: Absolutely. I'm I'm curious as to how they're gonna do that one. Me and me and Shag both <laughs> you Shaq. So <laughs> You gotta make me bleep things, right?
0: Yes, well I'm sorry. That's that's
1: No, I'm just uh I'm looking we're we're now at an hour and 45 minutes of recording. When I edit this down, it's about an hour and a half. Uh, why don't we jump into my book, because otherwise we're just okay. not going to get it done tonight. <laughs> so, I, I picked, not quite as randomly as Tom did, I picked Spider-Man 2099 number one. Why? Because I hadn't read it in about, tw- uh, about 20 years, and I just wanted to read it. Okay. Uh, came out in November of 1992. It had a cover price of $1.75. It's written by Peter David, penciled, and... The cover art are both by Rick Leonardi and inked by Al Williamson. Colors are by Steve Bucciolato and lettered by Rick Parker. And I want to thank Marvel.com, actually, because I did lift some of their synopsis. I did kind of take it to my own way, but I I used a lot of theirs, so I want to give credit where it's due. Story opens in New York, surprisingly, in the year of 2099 where we see five teens cruising above the city in a Whisper 3000 hover car. They're not expecting any trouble that high due to the vicious crosswinds at that altitude. However, they find themselves in the middle of a chase of a a black and red Spider-Man by the local authorities. There's a brief battle ending when Spider-Man makes his escape into the crowd below. Next, we cut to the apartment of Miguel O'Hara, where he's greeted by Lila, his Marilyn Monroe-looking holographic digital assistant. Who notifies him of six hollow messages the first is from his boss tyler stone at alchemex who strongly suggests that he give in to the drug he's fighting and come to the office the next is from his brother gabe who despite his contempt for the corporate raider program alchemex has him working for makes an effort to reach out to his brother for support miguel cuts the message short moving on to one from his fiancee dana d'angelo who, in the holographic message, is drawn to look to be about 13 years old. Her right eye is swollen shut, and she says that the night she saw him strung out on drugs was one of the scariest of her life, but but now she's even more frightened for him. He seems to have dropped off the face of the earth. Miguel cuts off the recording and doesn't bother to watch the other three that she left. Even Lila notes his unusual behavior is not within the normal programming parameters. He comes and goes at different hours. His heart rate is up. He hasn't made an entry in his journal in five days. Miguel decides to rectify the last point by recording all that has led up to his present condition, beginning in the laboratories of Alchemex. You can almost hear the flashback music playing right there. A yellow Flash harrow.
0: Flashback time. <laughs>
1: okay, oh, yeah, I don't do that the one that you do. <laughs> I was just thinking more of the harp strings. But, uh... Miguel Miguel O'Hara, one of the corporation's great hopes, a genius, given the full university treatment by the corporation itself, has been installed as the project head of a new genetics program. This led to friction with the higher-ranking Aaron Delgado, who saw Miguel as arrogant, spoiled, and lacking any respect for the existing command structure. Miguel certainly had no respect for Delgado, who who he treats like an idiot but he felt entirely justified by the remarkable progress of the project. They'd had remarkable success in altering the genetic structure of test animals, and he'd even found some quality research material for inspiration. Miguel introduces Aaron to a file on Spider-Man, one of the greats of the -the turn-of-the-century Age of Heroes, and with the proportionate strength, speed, and agility of a spider, a perfect example of what the Corporate Raider program hopes to achieve through genetic engineering. Unfortunately for Miguel, Alchemex is interested in results, quickly. Tyler Stone makes a trip to the lab in person to introduce the researchers to Mr. Sims, a convict who volunteered for the program in exchange for a commuted 40-year sentence. Miguel protests that they are nowhere near ready for human test subjects, but Stone and Sims both insist that he give it his best effort. Give it the old college try, if you will. Miguel starts with the simplest genetic modification he can devise, which would ideally give Mr. Sims augmented strength. He is partially successful. When Miguel opens the transformation chamber, only a horribly disfigured creature remains, but it breaks its bonds effortlessly and nearly chokes Miguel to death before falling dead from shock. Stone is prepared to call the results very positive, and Miguel is prepared to resign. At first, Stone appears to accept Miguel's decision. He even offers Miguel a goodbye toast of vintage 1994 wine in his office and tells him that any company that calls asking about him will only get the most glowing reviews. He does, however, see a problem with how Miguel will reacquire Rapture. You see, Rapture is a legal, mind-expanding hallucinogenic drug sold only through Alchemex. Outrageously expensive, it also bonds to the user's genetic code Making the withdrawal symptom, withdrawal symptoms lethal. Stone had just doped Miguel's wine with Rapture as a parting gift. In a stupor, Miguel stumbles out of Stone's office. By the time he arrives home, his trip has turned nasty. As he enters his apartment, he lashes out at his fiancée, who appears to first, who appears at first, to be some sort of monster. Miguel is sorry and explains the situation to her. Even if he chooses not to be a slave for Alchemex, he will be a still be a lifelong addict. Miguel sees only one chance to escape his fate. He had saved his genetic structure to use as a sample in the Corporate Raider program. He had been imprinting his structure onto apes, but if he can survive the process he might be able to revert back to his pre-drugged genetic structure. As he seals himself into the transformation chamber lab that night, Miguel believes he is alone. In fact, Aaron Delgado has been watching Unseen and decides to take this chance to rid himself of the arrogant upstart wildly changing control settings delgado never notices that he sets the machine to merge miguel's unaltered dna with that of a spider conveniently overriding all safety warnings delgado pushes the machines beyond their normal limits and they explode violently afterwards delgado is surprised to find miguel has survived and is stumbling dazed around the lab delgado decides to pay off to play off his involvement in the accident, telling Miguel that he's going to pay for damaging so much Alchemex equipment, and notices too late what kind of fanged, clawed creature Miguel O'Hara has become. To be continued. And again, thank you to Marvel.com, because while I wrote some of that, they did the majority of the work for me, which I appreciated. But I really like this. I think Peter David is an awesome writer, and I think he really just pulled us in with a a terrific story that just makes you want to pick up the next issue immediately. Uh, That said, I'm not the biggest Rick Leonardi fan. His artwork just seems... I think the storytelling is fine, the pacing is fine, but the individual renderings just seem a little too busy to me.
0: The fight scene at the very beginning is real... I mean, it flows really, really well. It's a great bit of storytelling. Yeah, oh yeah, I'm it's, not
1: I'm not criticizing the storytelling yeah. at all. And we, it's you know, when just
0: we, when we get to um Miguel hanging around in his uh apartment that things because it's like there are some there's a lot of sequences where the character doesn't characters don't look the same from panel to panel.
1: Yes, I would agree with that and that's one of the problems with it. And it it does seem to have an effort to fit into the uh, for lack of a better word, the out, the the uh, house style of the time, just that '90s look in the art, mm-hmm. uh, which is you know a little bit loose in the inking uh, right. and and a little bit uh, heavy-handed in some of the coloring, and and I wonder if this book might be one that would benefit from a black and white, right, from an rend- essential select, essential treatment. You know, I I don't know. This is one where I don't know that the color is adding to it, other than to distinguish the live characters from the holograms. That's the one area where uh, it might be far- hard to follow without the color coloring differences. Uh, but again, some, some of the detail work doesn't really thrill me too much, and, and I think you hit it on the head that from one panel to the next, some, some of the facial uh, renderings don't really hold up. But from a storytelling point of view, I think it really does the trick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and like I said, pacing-wise, it, it's also very well done. Um, now,
0: I have a very complex relationship with Peter David. Go ahead. I once belonged to an APA. For those of you who don't remember, this was before the internet. The idea was we each put together enough uh, like little magazines for everybody in the circle. We sent it to a central mailer. The mailer just stapled them all together and sent the, the, the big package out to us all. And I said something vaguely uncomplimentary about Peter David. About a week later, I get a phone call, and it's Peter David, demanding to know what I, what I did to him, that I, I, I said those uncomplimentary things about him. So he's an interesting character. He, he once actually said something about the when I, I was at a convention, and he was there, and I was like publicizing the Shadow Legion. He said something that kind of took me aback about the characters. But that's neither here nor there. Um, my problem with him is I think he's a great plotter. Mm-hmm. I think he's got a strong sense of story. But the man never met a joke he didn't want to retell over and over and over again. And Miguel is an in this book. He, in, in this attempt to make everything kind of kicky and funny and fun... David pushes Miguel to a point where he is just. I, I found him very unlikable. That might be the point, though, that he's unlikable until he transforms into Spider Man and, by being Spider Man 2099, redeems him a bit.
1: Yeah, maybe. I'm, I'm not sure. I didn't read this whole run. I had read mm-hmm. this issue and I think I've read a couple others and, and I liked them, but I didn't read the whole run, so I'm not sure about the character arc. I know I
0: got through to issue, at least issue number 25. Um,. And I think that's part of the problem is that he he just comes off so unlikable that when you know uh, what's his name Stone is his name yes when Stone poisons it, poisons him the um the reaction is not oh my God it's well serves you right jackass
1: <laughs> well I I think it's a matter of almost putting the jackass guy up against the even worse evil corporation so, <laughs> Bigger that, jackass. Root, so that you'll root for the ja- root for the jackass yeah. But I, I do see what you, where you come from. That he he doesn't come off as a likable guy. He comes off as kind of an arrogant guy.
0: Yeah, I agree with you that the the hollow image of Dana, especially the second panel that we see her, she does look like she's a you know a thirteen year old Vietnamese prostitute. <laughs> um, and that's the other thing, it's like the, the constant, uh, this one it's not as much, but the the, refer- the the cultural references, like the whole thing about, I saw this in this old holo called The Fly, you'd like it, you know, like, uh, no,
1: stop it. Yeah, that seemed a little heavy-handed and, and a little like it's un- unnecessarily dating the book.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that happens throughout. If you look at David's runs, particularly in the, the late 80s and 90s, they kind of don't hold up as much because of all this let's stop and make references to popular things that are going on right now Um, the other thing of course is this is the first glimpse we get into the 2099 universe this was the first issue in the line and it's obvious to me that it's still not fully formed yet that they've got some vague ideas about it being a cyberpunk world so like corporations are in control Mm -hmm. and the like such Right, but they're not like like the stuff about people being artificially aged has a you know has a punishment. I don't think we ever hear anything about that again hmm. well you know, I, I, thought, so I
1: see I thought with the twenty ninety nine universe they did they made the same mistake as they did with the ultimate universe uh in that they they took what was showing some popularity and they tried to milk it too hard and they expanded it too fast and they just, yeah. They they they, they didn't want to leave any concepts unrendered, Mm -hmm. and and that was that seemed to be the problem to me. You know when they had to have the 2099 Fantastic Four and the 2099 Hulk and the 2099 Ghost Rider and 2099 Ghost Rider is another one. Uh, Whereas it seemed like the only two truly successful concepts were Spider Man 2099. And Doom 2099. Yeah, yeah,
0: because that Doom 2099 had well, I mean, uh, Spider Man 2099 had Peter David pretty much for the whole sort, the whole run. Um, I think that Doom 2099 benefited from just having some really good writers, in that you had John Francis Moore for most of it, and then you had Warren Ellis taking over, who decided to do this whole story about a cootie takeover, you know, 2099 America. Right. You know, and then you had like Ravage, which was. Oof. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, Jake Gallows, The Punisher, 2099. And
1: uh, yeah. Exactly. And and I thought they did the same thing with the Ultimate Universe. You had Spider-Man was going very well. Uh, they introduced the X-Men, and at least it started out pretty interesting. But then all of a sudden you had to have Ultimate Avengers, you had, which, again, also started out kind of interesting, but, but wore out its welcome after a while. Ultimate Fantastic Four, you had to have... What other? I'm trying to remember what other Ultimate books they had, but
0: Um, they just seemed to. You had Ultimate FF. You had um, Ultimate Team Up. Yes,
1: which which Ultimate Team Up seemed to have no
0: uh, continuity with the other books either. mm -hmm. Well, it it contradicted some of the later books because you know Ultimate Daredevil was totally contradicted by uh, Ultimate Team Up,
1: and and Ultimate Hulk was too. I think. I think so. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it, it, it's just a desire to expand too quickly, which is, is like what we were talking about earlier. We we'll see we go full circle here. Uh, mm-hmm. We talked about these universes that they don't allow them to grow organically. Right. They just want to create a universe out of, out of uh, you know, one, one piece of paper and create an entire universe out of it instead of just letting it build and letting it build slowly and, and you know, gain momentum as it's going along. Of course, the fascinating thing about the Ultimate Universe is, I don't know if you ever
0: remember when they first started publicizing it, and they showed like the notes they originally had. It resembled nothing like what we got. Those I never saw. They, they had notes about what X, Ultimate X-Men was supposed to be about, and it had an entirely different lineup and an entirely different orientation. So it, it, it fascinates me. It's like when you look at the, uh, the original notes, the outline for Emerald Twilight, for example which bears no resemblance to the story that we got or uh the notes for onslaught. Yeah, I've heard yeah, that. Yeah, believe it or not, there different. were notes for onslaught.
1: I've heard that was very different. It
0: yeah, once again, had bear no resemblance to what actually showed up.
1: The the ultimate universe almost struck me as they were so desperate to get name people in there like Warren Ellis and uh uh, uh what you call some drum blanks on on names uh um, well, Mark, the, Mark, the, the Mark first, Miller
0: It was Brian uh, Michael Bendis and
1: Mark Millar yeah, who were Mark, like Mark Miller weird. is the one who I'm thinking of in particular with where, where they almost said to them you know what we want you to do this so badly that we're not going to give you any editorial reins at all just do what you want to do.
0: And oddly enough Bendis' work was probably the some of the best work he did for Marvel and Millar's work was the portent of things to come with him which is a lot of offensive shit, you know. And I, and I think oh, I think some sorry. of
1: what uh, Jeff Loeb came out with is some of the worst work he did for Marvel ever. Oh my
0: gosh, yes. What, was it the Blob who ate the uh, wasp? The wasp. Oh.
1: And 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 to make matters worse, in the panel where he's eating her, he says, "Tastes like chicken." Tastes like dumbass. <laughs> but uh, what I mean, what do you think of the of this particular book as opposed to the whole line
0: um you mean like the whole run of spider-man 2099 well uh, uh,
1: to to limit limited to issue 1 as opposed to issue lines.
0: 1 like i said i thought the action sequence worked really really well but i think that the portrayal of miguel came off too strongly as a jackass
1: mm, okay i i th- mm? i said okay that's i think that's fair like i said i think they tried to temper that by making him the jackass against even worse people. He's a jackass
0: uh, with a conscience.
1: Yeah, the basic.
0: <laughs> jackass uh, with a conscience coming soon to Fox.
1: <laughs> let, let, me, let me ask you this. We, we've taken to uh, grading these books with letter grades. Generally what we do is we give a letter grade for the cover, for the writing, for the art, and then an overall grade for the book. Okay. So I'm going I'm to start off by asking you, what do you think, letter grade-wise, for Silverblade? Okay, cover, definitely
0: a a a D. It's it's a very... Particularly considering this was a, a prestige, uh, one of those, like, Mando paper books at the time, which was a big deal, definitely a D. Uh, story, <laughs> I'm afraid also a D, because it's just a bunch of crazy crap that happens. Uh, artwork, uh, maybe an A-. minus, Just to see Gene Colan doing... Uh, doing Dracula again is, you know, does my heart well. Right. Uh, what else am I supposed to be grading? Oh, well, now, now that
1: you've given the individual grades, overall for the book,
0: maybe a C minus.
1: Okay, and and that's you know on the theory that a C would be an average book, not particularly bad, not particularly good. Right. Uh, from the from the only thing I can truly give a grade on this is the cover because it's the only thing right. I actually have in front of me, and I agree with your uh, D. Right. I and 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 that's. Giving a D to something drawn by Gene Colin is, uh, is shocking to me, but mm-hmm. but it just looks, as I said, like an incomplete picture. Right. So okay, I'm good with that. Uh, let's shift over to Spider-Man twenty ninety
0: nine number one. Um, cover. I think the cover is very strong. I give it like a a B. Um. Story wise, once again, we come back to my complex relationship with Peter David, and maybe a C plus uh, artwork, I'd also probably give it a C plus. You know, I, I think that as much as I love the action sequence, the inconsistent figure work in the back end detracts from it. And overall, I'd have to give it like a, I'd have to give it a B. All right, because um, I think it, it's a good it's a good entry point at least for the character, if not for the world. You yeah, do get I, a I sense of. That of who this character is, and that's something else. That's one of the other reasons why the book, like Silver Blade, gets such a low rating because it's impenetrable unless you've, you've – even when you've read the previous five issues, it's kind of just impenetrable.
1: See, cover-wise, it jumps out at me as – at a first glance, I almost think of it as one of these uh, attempts to create a poster image instead of telling you what's on in the story. But if you yeah. look a little closer and you look at the background, you see – there's the uh, people on the hovercraft shooting at him, and it's kind mm-hmm. of a scene right from the battles in the, in the beginning of the book. So my initial impression was wrong on that. Uh, and
0: I, I love how the cape billows out in such a way that it gives it as sort of uh, the Spider Man 2099, sort of a callback to the original Amazing Spider Man.
1: Yes, yes, logo. I like that a lot. I agree with you on that. I don't like the basically the anatomy, the way his legs meet up with his torso, his feet, mm-hmm. uh, his ankles. Uh, I, I think there's, there's some poor rendering there. What ankles? There. Yeah, well, <laughs> the, what, whatever, wherever his legs uh, attach to his feet, whatever that is. Uh, yeah, I mean, they get very narrow too. Um, mm-hmm. So so looking at that, I'm taking a little bit of points away. So I'm going to give the cover a C. I, 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 I'm not really... The, the biggest thing I'm giving a credit for is the character design and the logo design with the web uh, mm-hmm. cape playing into it, but it's not the strongest design I've ever seen. So I'm going to just say a C. Um, our interior artwork, again, I like the storytelling. I like the pacing. But the individual renderings really do take me out of it at points. Uh, and I'm not that wild about them. So I'm also going to give that a C. Story-wise, I'm a little higher on it than you are. I didn't find the Miguel O'Hara character to be quite as annoying as as you found him. Uh Although I do agree he is kind of a jerk at points. Uh, but I'm going to say, I'm gonna say a, a solid B on the story. Okay. And it did really want, make me want to go back and read issue two now. Mm-hmm. So because of that, I'm going to give the overall issue a B minus. And while it's been a lengthy time since I
0: last read it, I do recall this run being fairly strong. Um, of course, it gets uh, interrupted by that fall of the hammer stupid crossover thing
1: no oh, you gotta I mean, you gotta blame that on editorial that yeah.
0: blame on peter david exactly um i mean peter david as you know is notorious for hating every time he had to do a crossover and i don't blame him <laughs> um and but I, I do recall this as being a fairly strong book i mean and i i, I followed it through i think till almost the end same thing with uh Doom twenty ninety nine, which as we also was the other really, really, really good book in the twenty ninety nine line, which I think I followed through till Joey Calviari took over and decided to take Doom twenty ninety nine into modern day mm. uh, Marvel Earth, which kind of made things pointless.
1: Right. Well now and now they're doing that on Spider Man twenty ninety nine because the new series is set in current tech. Oh no 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 no. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks podcast group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast which you may find at www.2TrueFreaks.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy, all rights reserved. Take a moment to stop by and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.